Hello and welcome to the Energy Debrief podcast. And if my voice is unfamiliar to you, that's because I am the new host, Thomas McCann, and I'm going to be joined by different guests every episode as we look at the big stories of the past week. So make sure to stay with us for your updates on the news of the world. We're joined this week by Sean McGill and Logan Walker. Say hello, guys. Hello there. Thank you very much for having us, Thomas. Uh, Thanks for having us. No problem at all. So we'll just get straight into this. Our first story today is the changes to COVID guidelines in the UK over the Christmas period. The new rules mean that you can now have eight people over the age of 12 in one house with a maximum of three different households allowed in one home. You must maintain social distancing at all times and these changes will be in place between the 23rd and 27th of December. So guys, how are we feeling about it? I think I think it's like <laughs> I'm still trying like I'm still trying to comprehend it, so we can't be terms with it, but I think it's mm. it's absolutely mental. Are your families gonna be doing it or are you guys sticking to the to the original rules? I mean so like, my family be... never really has like a big, you know, family thing each year but so it doesn't like affect my family as much as I'm sure it does some others, but yeah. If it was like me personally, I don't. I think I'd probably be sticking to the rules as they are. Yeah. So I'm quite different. I normally travel f- uh, through to sort of Kilmarnock or Glasgow sort of way for a a big family thing. And this year, it would just be me, and my mum, and in our house, just because there's it's just it's not gone anywhere. The virus, nothing's changed in terms yeah. of the pandemic. It's not that um, the government have rolled out some fantastic mass testing strategy just before Christmas that allows us to see our families safely. And so we, we don't know, and it, they're just taking the hit on this one. And um, so I think a lot of people will be really trying to limit their uh, interactions. And me personally, yeah, it would just be a very, very quiet Christmas. Yeah, because I guess, I guess an important factor that they had to consider was that there is, well, there was the likelihood that people would just not follow the rules anyway because it's Christmas. So the so the rules that they put in place, um, almost, I don't know, they allow a certain level of non-compliance, I guess. But it's like you were saying, the um, the rates of COVID aren't really decreasing. It doesn't really seem like it's safe. So I'm not sh- I I don't really know, um, many people whose Christmas plans are are changing very much because of the new rules it's an interesting one isn't it because there's it's almost as if the government think that like you're sort of saying there that they, if they didn't do anything if they said rules are staying as they are you've just got to follow your tears then people would get together people are going to be together at Christmas yeah. you know that so this sets some sort of benchmark whether people I think we've seen throughout this pandemic that people will stretch the limits of, of guidelines but um, I think they definitely did have to go with something. It's interesting to look at what other countries have done as well. I think the most interesting one is Austria. When I mentioned mass testing there, um, they've rolled that out across, or are going to be rolling out across the country. They've, they're in a strict lockdown just now, which ends on the 6th of December, and they're going to roll out mass testing partly to let schools and workplaces go back, but also a big factor in this is to make sure that families can be together over the festive period. Um, but there's other countries taking a similar apo- approach. Spain, I think, are, are three households up to ten there, and uh, but instead of the sort of uh, 
run of the 23rd to 27th they're going Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Nicola Sturgeon has uh, heavily suggested that there won't be any new restrictions for us on on Hogmanay, which is a massive uh, deal in Scotland. It will be sort of back to the the tiers and the levels and all that sort of stuff. So looking across Europe, I don't think the UK government or the Scottish government have been particularly out there in this approach. Yeah, there's a lot of... um, Obviously, Christmas is a very significant time of year for a lot of people. Um, But I think, justifiably, a lot of of religious communities have come out to say, you know, our our festive season wasn't considered Mm -hmm. and we weren't given this opportunity. But it's just, you know, it's kind of raising the question of... um, you know, is is Christmas really that religious anymore? It's I feel like it's a lot more commercial. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a religious person, and um, no one in my family really, you know, practices Christianity. Mm-hmm. But you know, we celebrate Christmas, and everybody I know celebrates Christmas. But there's very few people I know who are actually religious. I think part of the problem is definitely that for like the last few months, especially around Halloween, they just kept saying like, in terms of Christmas, we'll wait and see, we'll wait and see. Yeah. I think the right thing to do would have been a few months ago, just say, look, Christmas is going to be different this year, but you know if everybody sticks to the rules and just accepts that it's a bit different this year, next year Christmas will be you know something closer to normal, rather than you know like sort of keeping people, um, keeping the idea of a normal Christmas dangling in front of people. It'd have been better if they just said ages ago. It's not going to happen and let people come to terms with it. Yeah, because it's, and when it's you... quite hard to like have this have this policy in place um, in parts of the UK and not have it in other parts. So like, mm-hmm. I feel like, um, you know, if Boris Johnson came out and said that you know there was going to be this uh, relaxation at Christmas and that you could meet your families, but then if um, Nicholas Sturgeon or um, Mark Drake for the Welsh First Minister, if they'd come out and said, like, we're not going to do this, then that would have, I think, potentially created a lot of problems. Mm. I think you're spot on, Thomas. I think this is one of the areas of this. that I think we've been striving for a four-nations approach throughout this, and obviously there's been times where nations have diverged, but I think this is a particular issue that had to be a four-nations approach. I think, because you've got... Uh, families in different parts of the UK uh, kids will be studying down south or up here or whatever and I think you absolutely had to go with uh, all four countries sort of heading the same direction on this one. Uh, Jumping back to your point on the religious elements or the fact that some religious groups didn't get to celebrate their their landmark holidays and stuff like that talking about the likes of Eid and Diwali and um, holidays like that and I just think that there's a lot to this issue, partly as you're, I think you're spot on that um, it's a commercial thing. The, the economy's taken a massive hit over uh, lockdown and Christmas is one of the things that can help in that sort of reprieve. But also, I think, uh, and this is a, le- a lesser part of it, but I think it is still a factor that the Conservative Party know that their base is older, white, um, and often Christian members of the public yeah and i think that um boris johnson as cabot would have been fully aware that if they were to cancel christmas as some uh media outlets kind of sensationally called it or uh, alluded to that 
there would have been a big bite back from their support. So while I think that it's more rooted in the financial side of it than the religious side of it, I still do think that it's some sort of political gamesmanship from the powers that be. Yeah, because there, there is a fine line between, you know, doing doing what's best for public health and doing what's best for the future of the economy. Because obviously, obviously the health of the people in your country has to be your number one priority. But it's also... It's it's also quite naive to think that um, we can just sort of, you know, to hell with the consequences with the economy because if if we took that approach and obviously there's been a lot of spending um, due to the COVID pandemic and not a lot of money coming in due to the the um, shutting down of the economy and obviously it's going to be us it's going to be the <laughs> the people like us students who <laughs> are paying this down the road so yeah. it's it is important to you know get stuff moving again, but also I don't know about you guys, but I'm getting ahead of my Christmas shopping. I've already done it, but um, I'm in Stirling, which is in uh, tier four, I think. It's hard to keep track now, but um, <laughs> all the non-essential shops are closed, yeah. so I've done all of my shopping online, and you know moving in that direction, I feel like um, more and more of Christmas shopping is done online now. And if you're using um, companies like Amazon to do that, who obviously get in a bit of hot water for not paying their taxes or not paying as much tax as they should be, then how much of how much of this Christmas shopping is really going to benefit the economy with everything moving online now? Yeah, I think it's a very good point, and I think that the amount of money that Jeff Bezos has made off the back of a pandemic is genuinely sickening. It's um, it's insane. It is. Yeah. I mean. And uh, I, 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 I hundred take your point and it's also, it, it takes out just the situation we're in. You don't have that sort of community sense of Christmas, which is what Christmas is to me. It's not a religious thing. It's um, about togetherness and family and um, being, being a nice person, essentially. And I think to take a year out from the sort of festivities of Christmas and maybe just really focusing on what that means to be a nice person. In this situation, it is just to protect those around you. So I think that's what the, the root of this is, is to remember that this isn't a time to be selfish and to think about yeah. um, how much you'd like to have a piss up with your family. Yeah. It's more about uh, aye, protecting the people who need it in our society and like Logan uh, said earlier in the show, there's always next year. Yeah, I think Sean's absolutely spot on. Like, surely this year represents an opportunity to like get back to what Christmas is actually supposed to to be about. Like, you know, being nice to people, and it's not supposed to be about going and spending loads of money and getting loads of gifts and stuff. It's just supposed to be about hmm. like a chance to you know reconnect with people. Yeah, it's a very good point, and I mean, especially in twenty twenty, I totally understand why people are saying, you know. Give us a break. Give us our like. Give us our Christmas back. I to- I totally get that. I totally get the, the fatigue with everything that we've had to endure this year. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like you're saying. There is always next year. And the thing is, um, when families do come together at Christmas, my family get together at Christmas. Um, you know, you you need to be watching out for the elderly at this yeah, time definitely. of year because 
the fact that it's just I mean, we're we're still in a like if even if you take away the threat of COVID, you know, we're still in a we're still in a cold winter, um, which is you know also uh, detrimental to the health of elderly people, and with a vaccine seemingly very close, it just to me it feels like an unnecessary risk to have everybody round at the one table and also to yeah. say that um, if you're having people round you know you have to be socially distant at all times are you is it at that point is it even really worth it are you yeah. really getting the like because you're not going to have the the spirit of everybody sitting around the table for Christmas dinner are you you're going to need to have like different households in, in different rooms and throwing bits of turkey across the, the table and stuff like that <laughs> yeah and they're saying like um, are you going to do Christmas crackers and yeah, and they're saying uh, you can um, if you're coming into somebody else's house, you should not use their dishes and cutlery. So you know, people coming round with the you know big multi packs of paper plates and like, sitting in the back garden isn't very Christmassy. And yeah, it's just I, I know I know personally that my family are just going to be sticking to the current rules. It sounds like you guys are going to be doing the same. Um, but yeah, it's, I just sort of worry about one. the. I do think about, and I, I don't know that I've actually um, thought about it enough to form a proper opinion on it, but I, I know friends who have grandparents who are in vulnerable positions. It's maybe um, cancer, it's maybe heart problems and lung problems. Um, and their thought, sort of thinking is, well, if we don't do this, then this could be our last Christmas with them. Mm-hmm. And But then there's also the risk that you're contributing to that by potentially putting them at risk and I, I, I honestly wholeheartedly sympathise with that sort of moral dilemma I don't I don't know what I would do in that situation um, it's, it's a really tough one for families to consider and it's just sort of underlines the absolutely horrendous year that we've all had and yeah. like you said great news on the Moderna vaccine today would really do seem to be um, there's finally light at the end of the tunnel I just really hope that um, we can sort of see out these next few months and then we've got a much more happy and normal time to look forward to. Yeah, because there, there was an article that was either in the in the National or the, or the Scotsman um, and it was about how they're planning to have um, a million Scots vaccinated by the end of January against Covid. So yep. it's not like it's not like you're being told you know, if you sacrifice Christmas this year, there there will be a vaccine like by next Christmas. It's it's much it's much closer than that. Mm. The yep. um, they're saying you know the vaccine could be fully rolled out um, by Easter, back to normal by summer, and so with the fact that I think it is now inevitable that after Christmas, going towards sort of like the first week after Christmas cases will be up and yep. it just yeah, definitely. it just seems like you know we're not we're not out of the woods yet which is why the government are taking the approach of like you know you can do it but we're telling you that you shouldn't mm-hmm. well that's yeah, the thing say, like, when it gets to like the 28th of december and people have spent the last five days together with like you know friends and family they've not seen in such a long time how easy is it going to be to go back to like the previous tier system how keen are people going to be to go back to playing by the rules yeah yeah, I mean, yeah that's such a good you, point if you need to practice social distancing 
Um, but it can go over if but these rules continue over four days does that mean that like does it mean you can have people stay overnight whilst I think that's the social plan, distancing yeah. it's yeah um, I think Logan makes a great point if you become desensitised to the practices of social distancing the practices of not having friends and family around you if it doesn't just change a switch overnight. It's like on the twenty eighth, um, if they've if they've what forgotten their their wallet or something like that, you let them back into the house and they just stay it's for a cup wallet, of coffee yeah. and they just chat. And <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Though this, yeah. if you don't, uh, it's that switch isn't going to be easy for people, and it's not. And I I think it will lead to overall lesser compliance across the board, yeah. Yeah. and um, which leads to cases and deaths and. All the numbers we don't want to be seen, especially as we keep saying, we're almost, almost there. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to see how, how it goes with that. But uh, for now, we're going to move on to our second story of the week, which is uh, President Donald Trump has stated that he will leave the White House if the result of this year's election is certified by the Electoral College. Uh, the president appears to have accepted the outcome of the vote, although he still maintains there's been large-scale fraud in this election. There has been zero evidence to support those claims. <laughs> so, I mean, how closely have you guys been following this mental oh, I've been, story? I've been loving it. I've yeah. been absolutely loving it. <laughs> Plays like a soap opera, honestly. I mean, yeah, I saw that even like a couple hours ago he was tweeting about the governor of Georgia, who is a Republican... You know, having a go at him saying that he's like, he's letting the Democrats steal the election. He's not doing a good enough job. It's just, I think it's crazy that it's still going on. Like, however long the election, however long ago the election was, that it's still he's still maintaining mm. that he won it. Because uh, Sean, me and you, we covered the U.S. election for a radio debrief. We pulled an all nighter, you know, calling the states <laughs> and you know, um, keeping up to date with proceedings. And it seems. Seems ridiculous now in hindsight, but I thought I would go home knowing who'd won <laughs> and that that would just be, you know, solid. That would just, you know, beyond any doubt. And that that's the weird thing. It is it is kind of beyond any doubt, except the president who just has ba- basically alluded that he will accept it now, but maintaining it's been a very fraudulent... Mm. election yeah um, like you said we were up all night and I was probably in the same boat as you I was really excited to know who was going to win this historic uh, probably the most important US election in, in history and uh, yeah, that was the Tuesday night and then it was I think Joe Biden it was declared for Joe Biden Saturday afternoon wasn't it um, yeah and it's just it, and it's kind of um, the way that this just rambled on, I, I think we, a lot of people did expect it. I think we knew that uh, Donald Trump wasn't going to go quietly. And it kind of just sums up the sort of uh, extremely volatile and chaotic nature that Donald Trump has brought about to ma- American politics. And um, it's a fitting end for him. It's not a good look for America. It's not a good look for its democracy. But it does seem to be winding, winding down now. But as you said, it's he's still going to keep running his mouth potentially until a, another way in 2024 yeah because it was um, 
it was very surprising on the night of the coverage when um, I think we were on we were just about halfway through all the states being called and then it was announced that um, Joe Biden was going to give a statement and that's when he came out and said that him and his camp believed that they were on track to win and if you'd you know if you'd been following Joe Biden as a politician that is that is not something he would come out and say so early unless he was a hundred percent sure mm. and I mean Trump got a lot more votes than than I expected um, I mean Joe Biden got more votes than any candidate in history but um, Donald Trump second in the last yeah I was not I was not expecting the race to be that close to be honest yeah it's interesting obviously it depends on the swing states are the real thing isn't it it's, it's yeah. that's what that's what won Trump the election in 2016 and we maybe thought Florida might swing, North Carolina might swing, Texas might swing. They, they didn't in the end, um, but it's still a, it's. Um, you say it's maybe a closer election, but it's the same margin that Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in twenty sixteen, and he called that an emphatic victory. His campaign, his administration lauded it, um, just how comprehensively he'd won that one. So I think that's yeah. another factor that's that's backed him into a corner, and ultimately led to that um, conference on Friday where he kind of said, I'm, I'm well, very jaggedly and while arguing with plenty of reporters, I think he called someone a little man, or lightweight, didn't he? One of the mm. senior reporters in the White House. Um, it's just part of the, the circus that has been Donald Trump's presidency. Do you guys do you guys follow him on Twitter? Do you see his tweets? I do. Yeah, it's, it's mental, isn't it? It's, I mean, every, every day now, at least one tweet is flagged by Twitter for misinformation. Yeah, I definitely think in like 10 years' time I'll still be putting up tweets like, remember that election 10 years ago, I, I won that. And that's the thing, his old, his old tweets have really come back to haunt him because somebody pulled a tweet of his from 2016 where he, um, it was about, um, I think it was uh, something uh, Vladimir Putin had said. He said that uh, the Democrats um, had to learn to lose gracefully and with dignity. And Trump tweeted that, and he said, like, you know, oh, this this is all true, you know, shame on them, and now here we are, and he's, you know, throwing his toys out the pram a bit, and it's, it's kind of strange that it is still a debatable topic at this point, because he's continuing to make it a debatable topic, and it's kind of scary to think about the impact that that has on democracy as a system in the US and you know is Trump a threat to to democracy with the way he's been acting yeah definitely I think you know like if, if the president of the United States is willing to go out and uh, you know criticise the integrity of their system then anybody can go out and criticise it and say well you know the guy that's in charge of the country is saying it yeah because it was causing gen genuine upset. People were really, really upset that he couldn't just concede. Because that's the thing we still haven't seen a concession. We're near mm. we're nearly a, a month <laughs> on from this election, um, and the cl the closest we've had to a concession is him saying that you know he will leave 
if he's told to, basically. Yeah, I think it is worrying for American democracy, but I think that the way in which uh, President-elect Biden won the campaign is that I think it shows that America is slightly shifting and we're going to see something different. And I think that mm. although you still have your, your favourite uh, Trump supporters, I think that the America as a whole is sick and tired of this really, really divisive, tribalistic form of politics. And I think that in backing a very sort of, uh, I was going to say conservative, but that's a bit weird for a Republican, but a sort of safe choice in Joe Biden. Um, a Democrat, sorry. Um, I think that it just kind of shows that a time of calmness is has kind of been accepted in American politics, and I think that those people who voted for Joe Biden and perhaps some of those who didn't will uh, have faith that this is this was a fair election, as as all the evidence points to, and sort of know that this is kind of a um, this reflects the good in American democracy rather than letting. Mm. Trump tear it down. I'm interested. Do you guys think that he, he genuinely thinks this election was rigged or uh, full of fraud, or do you think that it's think so. solely just a? It's really it is really hard to to figure that one out. I've been thinking about that to be honest, and you know, with um, there was a lot of stories coming out that his, like in the in the days after his advisors were telling him to, you know, accept defeat basically. So I feel like I feel like he's got a lot of people around him telling him, you know, that this race is run and, you know, he, that he did lose. And um, there was a there was a report published saying that it was something like not only was there no corruption, but this has been um, one of the safest elections in recent history from corruption. So I just the whole the, the whole thing about the last. Um, four years with Donald Trump as president is it is hard to tell what he truly believes mm-hmm. um, but yeah no I, I totally agree with what you were saying Sean about um, Biden being able to sort of um, pull both sides together because he is very he's um, in terms of you know left wing right wing politicians he's, ba- he's basically yeah. right in the middle um, it's hard not to say conservative because we're talking yeah, about a Democrat. Yeah, we are talking uh, about a Democrat. Candidate, a uh, future um, Democrat uh, president, but yeah. Um, he's more to the centre of the party and a lot of yeah. the, 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 the progressives in, um, in that party were kicking against that. They wanted real sort of left-wing change. But I think that Biden, you can see by Biden's policies, he's backed the Green New Deal, he's going to re- re-enter the Paris Agreement. That's obviously going to appease the left wing of the party and then he also his taxation policy it was only um, people earned over $400,000 who were going to be taxed more which to us in the UK just sounds absolutely mental um, yeah. I think <laughs> it can't even, I mean what was it uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's policy was like £81,000 uh, yeah. I think so yeah. the difference there is and obviously they comfortably lost that election but I don't think that was the main issue there and it's just I think yeah Biden will be able to speak to a lot obviously he's got his record alongside uh, President Obama and I think that uh, American politics will continue to be uh, interesting but it has been genuinely fascinating for sometimes for all the wrong reasons over the past four or five years 
and I think that we're going to see a, a shift to a, a more sort of uh, tranquil time across yeah. the across the pond. Well, we can o- we can only hope so. I mean, it's um, it is definitely fun for us to cover them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it is definitely one of the most uh, divisive political systems. You know, you really are either Democrat or Republican. That's sort of that's always how it's been. Um, but people people will swing and you know you know betray their party um based on candidates you know that has happened before and from what i saw on um twitter uh, republicans for joe biden was a pretty substantial movement um because he is sort of capable of bringing both sides together i think and also uh, it'll be interesting to see what role kamala harris has because joe biden is going to be the oldest president in the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. So I think it's safe to assume that the vice president um, of his term will be taking on a bit more responsibility than would normally be trusted to a vice president. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think that a successful term in this sort of... Uh, Biden Harris campaign, uh, the the Biden the Biden campaign as a whole has been reluctant to say whether or not he would stand again in four years' time. But yeah. I think we all know that's very very unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, so a good term off the back of this ticket, of this successful ticket, the most successful ticket in um, American political history. I think that's st- it sort of stands Kamala Harris in great stead to be. Um, the next president of the United States after Joe Biden, the, the first female president, the first uh, African American female president, all those sort of things that have been listed off for mm. her uh, when she became vice president elect. I think she's got a great, great chance to do that, um, but to be the president of the United States next. Yeah, I definitely think that was something that was quite beneficial to the Democrats. I saw Joe Biden touted in a lot of places as uh, more of a transitional president. So there's probably some people who thought like I'm, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of Biden, but get him in, and then maybe in four years' time it'll be a bit different. There'll be somebody else in, and like that's what they were really voting for. Yeah, because that that is the question after, um, after Biden's presidency, are we going to see, a sort of, transition to sort of, potentially less confrontational, more, centrist kind of, politics? But I mean. You know, it is the US. It's very hard to tell what's what's going to happen. Um, the the maps on election night were definitely very surprising. I mean, a Democrat winning in Georgia was definitely you know one of the big one of the big outliers. And also, Joe Biden was winning um, Texas for quite quite a long time. I mean, nearly. I think it was when round about maybe just under 50% of the ballots in Texas had been counted. Biden was still winning. Mm. So it almost looked like he was on course to, you know, do the unthinkable. But um, I think I think there is a bit of a shift. And it's just, it's just about whether the shift is due to people being sick of President Trump or people really genuinely believing in Joe Biden. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't. Joe Biden. I think a lot of people would be lying if they said that they thought that Joe Biden was a particularly inspiring candidate, and mm. I, that was part of the, the reason that I think he, he received the Democratic nomination is that Trump didn't have as much dirt to sort of, uh, dig up on him as we saw the way that he, he treated Hillary Clinton in those debates. Um, obviously Trump tried with uh, stuff about, um. Joe Biden's son and all those sort of things, but he's a very sort of clean-cut character as Joe Biden, and um, I think that's just what and he needed to be. Sort of the antithesis of Trump, he needed to be safe, he needed to be reliable, he needed to be a bit, a bit boring, really. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why he was so successful. And maybe uh, if in four years' time it's a different, if Trump doesn't uh, run again. And we see some days maybe there will be an opportunity for the Democratic Party to shift further to the left to have a more sort of exciting candidate, but and that very well could be Kamala Harris. I don't know if that's necessarily much of a shift to the left, but I just think that um, I think it, we're right in the sense that this is very much a transition for the party. They just needed to have power again, and we'll see yeah. how they progress and how they do shift in the coming years. Well, it's definitely a story to keep an eye on because um, Trump conceding, that's still something a long way away, something we might never see. So it's important to keep an eye on that. But for now, we're just going to move on to our final story for this episode, which is the um, Diego Maradona, who is regarded as one of history's greatest ever football players, has died at the age of 60. Um, the Argentine had a stellar career, most notably with uh, Napoli and Barcelona, and his life is going to be com- commemorated with the renaming of Napoli Stadium, which will now be called San Paolo Diego Armando Maradona. So, um, Maradona's death is obviously a massive loss for football, but this isn't just a sporting story. He was a hero in Argentina, and you know he's he's going to be missed, but um, definitely one of the um, one of the craziest footballers we've ever seen. Yeah, I think when you mentioned it about the stadium being renamed or Diego Maradona's name being added to it, that's yeah. San Paolo, Italian for Saint Paul. He's been put on the same uh, category as as a literal <laughs> saint, and yeah. I think that um, if you look back at Maradona, particularly in Napoli, I mean, when he joined them in 1984, um, they had never won a league title, they weren't a yeah. particularly successful club, and he came in and he almost single-handedly won them two league titles and the UEFA Cup, and he achieved literal godlike status in in Naples, and that term gets thrown about quite a lot, like, oh, he was a god, he was worshipped, it's literally the case for Diego Maradona mm-hmm. in Naples, um, and I think a few people have made the point that that's potentially what led him to his more sort of sordid areas of his life. That I think that the pressure of being of being worshipped, of people uh, kissing his feet in the street, led him to this sort of life of of drugs and mm. adultery and all the things that um, all the bad sides of Diego Maradona. And it must have been a lot of pressure for him. But like you say. He's one of those people who transcends his sport. Everyone knows mm. who Diego Maradona is, regardless of whether you're a football fan or not. And it was a it was a, a sad day, despite being a very troubled man. Yeah, and yeah. on that note, whether whether you are a football fan or not, I'd be 
I'd be very surprised if you had never heard of the hand of God, yeah. um, which was one of the most infamous moments in history and one of the biggest moments in Maradona's career um, when he scored against England at the World Cup using his hand. And um, sounds like um, England's goalkeeper at the time, uh, Shelton, <laughs> it sounds like he um, still hasn't quite forgiven him. But... Um, yeah, do you want to jump on that one, Logan? Have, have you have you read that Peter, all the stuff from Peter Shelton? Uh, so, uh, so it was on Twitter saying something like, oh, he was a he was a brilliant football player, but he should have owned up to that whole thing with the handball." Well, um, I think I think a direct quote from what he said was, "He never apologised." <laughs> Maradona will yeah, always wrote... hold a special place in my heart for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he wrote a column in the Daily Mail like this has really got, and on on the day after that. He died. Peter Shelton yeah. hears this news. I imagine he was approached by the people in Daily Mail, um, and he decides to write this pretty scathing column on um, a man who's revered around the world and is very sadly passed. And uh, the thing about the hand of God is that he—it's a—if it happened to us, if if this, if this had happened to Scotland, we would have clung on to it as well. But I think you've also got to be in the knowledge that. It, uh, it sums up Diego Maradona's character. Do whatever it, it took to win, and um, and you and shouldn't forget that like five minutes after that he scored like the greatest <laughs> yeah. goal ever as well. Yeah, Genu- genuinely two of the most iconic goals in the history of football, and I don't yeah. I don't think that's hyperbole. Um, one because of its like sheer artistry, sheer skill. The ball stuck to his foot, and he just uh, waltzed his way through almost the entirety of the England side. And the other one because. He stuck his hand and it went over Peter Shelton, <laughs> and they won the game. And I think that um, no matter how time moves on, football is becoming there's sharp, uh, quick passing, there's beautiful long range goals with the flight of the ball, all that sort of stuff. But I think you'll be hard pressed to find two more iconic goals in the history of football than those two. And I think we'll be seeing the exact same in hundred years' time. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, um, you know, an argument is as long as time among football fans is who is, you know, the best player ever. And I think before before Messi, people weren't expecting to see a player with as much of a natural gift as Maradona had. He was definitely regarded as potentially the best footballer of all time. A lot of people do still hold him in that regard and say that, you know, he is better than Messi that's a subject for debate but um, and obviously the Maradona that uh, we grew up with was um, you know um, plagued with you know drug and alcohol problems yeah. you know he had a he had a heart attack in 2004 um, he got sent home from the 94 World Cup because he tested positive for banned substances and um, I think it's like you were saying Sean I mean that's about being being hailed as a god on earth, that's that's bound to get to you, and that's no, that's bound to have an impact on you. And I definitely think that because like Maradona's playing days were over uh, when we were growing up, like you know, like when I think about Maradona, I don't really think about him as a footballer. He's more like a rock star. Yeah. Like <laughs> when I think about him, like and I, you know, I actually really like that because I think so many footballers when you see them, or at least you know, like the way they're presented to the media, they're very boring. They give the same answers, but he was like this eccentric, you know, like rock star who did outrageous things, and he was a proper, proper character. And I always, uh, 
you know, really liked him for that. Yeah, I don't know if you remember. Um, he was in the stands um, at the World Cup in Russia in twenty eighteen, <laughs> and um, honestly, the the cameramen just they just couldn't bring themselves back to filming the game. They just yeah. had to keep going to him because he was, you know, he was he was the most passionate fan there. You know, he was holding up a banner. He was you know jumping about, dancing, and everything. And he did really like over overdo it sometimes especially with the medical problems he's had mm. um but yeah i mean in argentina i think i think it was in argentina um the day the day he died or the day after there was a article published in a magazine that was just called like god is dead or the god has died yeah. and yeah a few headlines with that yeah and um he was obviously it's he was a big presence at um boca juniors as well, where he had his own, he had his own. Um, like, did he have his own box sort of at the stadium? Box. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they they kept they kept the light on, and they turned all the lights in yeah. the stadium off, but kept that one on on the day that he died, which is that was a very seen lots of photo. Yeah, a lot lot of fitting tributes. Uh, Lionel Messi, he scored the goal in Barcelona's one over us as soon at the weekend, and mm-hmm. uh, took off his Barcelona strip to reveal a sort of retro. Mule's old boy top the Argentinian one of the Argentinian teams that uh, Diego Maradona played for the one that Lionel Messi grew up supporting and yeah. um, that that's his that's his idol and I thought that was a, a very touching tribute and also the hacker done by um, the All Blacks over the weekend as well against the Argentinian football team they laid down a Maradona strip and did a, a very emotional hacker so it shows the uh, how much he resonated with people yeah. um, and. It's like it's um, like you said. He but, he transcended the sport of football. He was just he became he was he was an icon because of how good he was at football. But it just sort of turned into him just being an icon, especially for the people of Argentina. Yeah, there's an interesting sort of uh, I'm a bit, a more darker side to this story, considering that um, there's prosecutors investigating the circumstances of Diego Maradona's death. His, his doctor's been. Yeah. Um, Questioned in terms of a potential manslaughter charge, um, maybe not receive his med his medication in the right way. Um, Doctor Luque completely uh, rebuts those claims, but it's an interesting one to keep an eye on from a more sort of news sense, I guess, than sort of us um, just reminisce about about the man himself. Yeah, it is kind of. Um there's there's a lot of stuff coming out at the moment, different stuff about um, you know, potential like um like illegitimate children who want a DNA test done and, you know, the doctor's being called in and, you know, he's saying he should have gone to rehab and all this and um it's um it's quite fitting that even though Maradona's not here anymore he is still he is still making the headlines for mm. just the the craziest <laughs> stuff. Because he was he was a also, crazy guy. Yeah, and also I thought it's really nice considering um, obviously we're a Scottish-based podcast and Maradona has a very sort of uh, strong connection with Scotland. His first yeah. ever goal for Argentina mm-hmm. was scored at Hampden Park. The first game he ever managed for Argentina was at Hampden Park. And um, I just think that's a nice link. It might sound like just grasping to any sort of thing you have, but I think that um, when you've got 
a player and an athlete and a character the stature of Diego Maradona and the fact that little bits of his storied career could be traced back to this country I think is, is a really nice thing to remember yeah, yeah I'm sure I saw a quote from I don't know how accurate it was but it was along the lines of the English might hate me but the Scottish love me and that's all that matters yeah I, I did <laughs> see that yeah um, but yeah definitely again Maradona keep an eye out for stories about him in the papers because it seems like even though like I said even though he's not here he's not done yet with the media but um, that's going to be it for um, our episode this week so Sean Logan big thank you for coming on with me today and giving me a helping hand cheers for having us yeah thanks for having us I recommend that everyone keeps an eye on what Thomas is doing with this podcast because I'm sure it's going to be getting bigger and better over the next few weeks Thank you. You are both always welcome back. And um, new episode will be out next week. And uh, hope you'll join us for that. Take care.